beginning at verse 26 in Hebrews chapter 10. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which should devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's just commit our time together this morning at God's word to the Lord. Father, as we read these verses this morning, they're difficult verses for some. And many have been caused concern or fear through these verses. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we study your word, that we allay these fears, that you will reveal to us your word as you intended it to be written. Help us, Lord, as we study your word this morning to have open hearts and open minds, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, open this word to us, and that we would indeed be encouraged through what we hear from your holy word today. And we pray today that also, Lord, you will bless the public reading of your word to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just by way of background, the letter to the Hebrews was written to second-generation Jewish believers who were being persecuted by their fellow Jews because of their profession of faith in Jesus. Any Jew who professed to be a Christian was considered unclean and expelled from the synagogue. And because that day-to-day existence was difficult, many of the believers of the day were looking to escape by returning to an outward form of Judaism. And the purpose of this letter is to encourage those Jewish believers to patiently endure and to grow in maturity in Christ. And if we're to understand it fully, we must read it in this same context. The letter to the Hebrews contains five separate warnings. First one against drifting away, we find that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The second warning is against disobedience in chapters 3, verse 7 through to 4, verse 13. The third warning is failing to progress to maturity, chapter 5, verse 11 through to 6, verse 20. The fourth danger, that of willful sin, chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, our text for today. And the fifth danger, the danger of indifference, which we'll find in chapter 12, verses 5 through 29. And so today we're going to look in detail at this fourth warning, the danger of willful sin. And the verses that we've just read have become and proven to be a stumbling block for many, causing many people to live in daily fear of losing their salvation and therefore needing to work in order to keep it. And the fact that this is not the case is what we shall study today. But for context, let's just go back a little bit further in this chapter and begin by looking from verse 19. So let's begin in verse 19, where we read there, having therefore, brethren, boldness, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That phrase, having therefore, 
indicates that this is a completed yet a continuing act. And because of that completed and continuing act, we as believers can continue to have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. In other words, we can be assured that because Jesus has opened the way, we can draw near to God boldly. Because we have been cleansed of sin. We've been washed and sanctified by the shed blood of Christ, who is our high priest and our one and only saviour. That's what we remembered this morning, wasn't it, with the bread and the wine. And we read in verse 20 of, um, that, that we enter by a new and living way, which he hath, in other words, which he has already consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And so we're able to enter that inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, because of the shed blood of Jesus. And that the veil that has once separated us has now been torn down. And we can enter through that veil, which is his flesh. In verse 21, we read, and having, and again, that's a, a completed yet continuing act. We have and we continue to have a high priest over the house of God. That high priest which we've already heard about this morning. Who is our high priest? I'm sure you could all shout that name out at once if you wanted to. It's Jesus, isn't it? Hebrews 5.6 tells us that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who in Hebrews 7 verse 25 is able also to save them to the uttermost. That come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I'd like you just to take note of what we've just read there. He's able to save to the, what? The uttermost. And that Greek word for uttermost is the Greek word pantelis, meaning to the full end or entire. In other words, as believers, we have been entirely and completely saved. We move on to verses 22 through 25 of chapter 10, we see that the writer here starts to present four exhortations to us. The first one's in verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So how are we to draw near? We're to draw near with a true heart and with full assurance Entire confidence of faith. Well, how do we do this? By having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When we're born again, the blood of Jesus washes us and cleanses us from our sin, doesn't it? We read that in 1 John 1 verse 7. But in terms of what we're reading here in this letter to the Hebrews, why was it necessary to exhort those Jewish believers to draw near. Let me just refer to the commentator, David Guzik. He explains it this way. He says, the encouragement to draw near wouldn't be given unless it was necessary. These discouraged Christians may have thought that they had many, many problems. Persecution, difficult relationships, hard times with culture or economy. But the real problem was that their relationship with God wasn't on track. They didn't draw near to God on the basis of what Jesus had done. Did you notice anything in that 
comment that David Guzik made that applies to you and I? Do we sometimes think about our many, many problems, about persecutions and difficult relationships? Do we have hard times with culture or economy? And could it be, perhaps, that the reason we are suffering from those things is that we're not, perhaps, in a full relationship with God. We're not giving him the glory that we should be giving, not trusting him enough. We all go through those times, don't we? We all find it difficult. And it's a sign of our maturity in Christ as to how we are able to deal with those problems. When times are tough, do we get discouraged? Rather drawing near to God, do we rely on our own thoughts or turn to other solutions first? The scripture tells us that we should turn to the Lord, doesn't it? He says that we should take everything to him with prayer and make our request known to him. That second exhortation is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Notice that word faith because here that word faith in verse 23 isn't the same word as we see in verse 22. We've only got that one English word for faith. But in verse 22, the Greek word for faith is pistis. It means persuasion or assurance, belief, and in particular, reliance upon Christ for salvation. But in verse 23, that Greek word translated faith in our English Bibles is the Greek word elpis. And it's a primary word meaning to anticipate, to expect, to have faith or to hope. And that word appears 40, 54 times in the New Testament, and 53 out of those 54 it's translated as hope. And so we might read, therefore, verse 23 in this way. We might say, hold fast the profession of our hope. Hope in what? In Jesus as the Messiah. And then when we look at those words, hold fast, picture a ship moored to a quayside. It's held fast alongside. I spent some time in the Merchant Navy, and when we came into port, we used to have ropes holding us fast to the quay. They'd be fore, they'd be after, and there was also two what they called spring ropes that went for diagonally to hold the ship. But it couldn't move because those diagonal ropes and those fore and aft ropes held it fast alongside. And so we also need to hold fast. We need to hold tightly to our own faith and hope. And the question is how? How should we hold fast? And we find an answer in verse 23. We're told there to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. That word without wavering begs the question, why were these Jewish believers wavering? Why might we waver? They were wavering because they were discouraged through persecution. And the writer here is encouraging them to have confidence in the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant so that they could stand in strength, knowing that he is faithful that promised. And so we need to ask ourselves a question here. Do we trust in Jesus enough to have that confidence, to stand in strength and to know that he is faithful? And I trust that that's true for all of us here today and those online who might be listening, that we would have that trust in Jesus. Remember in Psalm 118, verse 8 and 9, we read that it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. We should trust the Lord 
not man, not our leaders even. We should trust the Lord. The third exhortation is in verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That word consider means to take special notice of one another, to provoke one another, to stir each other up, to encourage one another in love and to do good works. Love is our attitude toward others. Love is our attitude towards others, but good works is the outworking of that love directed toward the needs of our fellow believers. In other words, what the writer's telling us to do here is to think outwardly and not inwardly. We'd have a proper concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see that reflected in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, where Paul says, For I say to every man, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members of another. Each one of us is a different member of the body. We can't all be thumbs or little fingers or eyes or ears, can we? But we all depend on each other. For whichever part we play, you might depend on somebody else for their eyes, or somebody else for the use of their hands. Somebody else for their understanding and knowledge of God's word. We all have a different or are different parts of the body. And that brings us then to this fourth ex- uh, exhortation in verse 25. And because here what, what has been previously explained, fellowship with other believers is very important. And it's therefore important not to forget, forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Remember, he's writing to Jewish believers, but we can always examine this word and see perhaps where there might be application for us too. That word forsake means to completely abandon. And what was he saying you shouldn't abandon? The assembling together with other believers. And that Greek word here for assembling is episunagogi, And that contains the root word for synagogue. And the command is to come together in order to exhort or to encourage one another. To encourage one another. That's what we should be doing when we come together in fellowship. And the writer's encouraging his readers not to revert to Judaism. And he repeats something that he's already spoken of back in chapter 3 of Hebrews. In verse 13, where he says, Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. But remember when this letter was written to second generation, first century Jewish believers, and some of them were refusing to be identified as believers, and some of them had avoided meeting together. They turned their back on Christianity and were reverting to Judaism. Hence the verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so why is there an urgency to meet and exhort one another? And the writer here says it's because the day was approaching or drawing near. But what day is the writer referring to here? The day here is not referring to the end time day of the Lord, 
The day here is referring to a time when a specific judgment was going to take place as a result of a specific sin. The judgment we see in Matthew 24, in verses 1 and 2, is the coming destruction of the temple. Jesus foretold that in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, we read that Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now again, it's important to understand that this particular judgment was for that generation of Jews only. And the reason for that judgment is given to us in Matthew 12, verses 22 to 32. We read there in verse 22 that Jesus had cast out the devil from a man who was born blind and dumb. And when the Pharisees heard it, we read in verse 24 of Matthew 12, they said, this fellow does not cast out devils, by, but, by Dea, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. They've accused Jesus of casting out devils by the prince of devils. But who's Jesus speaking to here? Is he speaking to Gentiles or is he speaking to Jews? He's speaking to the Pharisees, isn't he? And the Pharisees were, the, were Jews. And also, when we take that context, he was speaking to the generation of Jewish people that were alive at that time, those Jewish leaders. And it was these same Pharisees who would later stir up the mob to demand Jesus' crucifixion. And so put that generation of Israel under physical or temporal judgment. And that's what is being referred to as the unpardonable sin. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 31. He says to them, Wherefore I say unto you, Pharisees, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Dwight Pentecost says this of this verse. He says, As long as people remain citizens of that nation, they were under the judgment God had decreed upon that generation. Only those who identified themselves with Christ by baptism and thus terminated their citizenship in the nation, would escape coming judgment. That coming judgment became apparent in AD 70, when Titus not only destroyed the temple, but also the Jews in Jerusalem. And this is the reason for the urgency of this exhortation. And so those four exhortations are interesting just for the way of background, and that brings us now to the text for today, the warning against willful sin. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, verses 26 to 31 are often misunderstood. And so let's examine these verses carefully, remembering the context of the letter, remembering who it was written to, why it was written, and how those who heard it would have understood it in the light of what they knew of the scriptures. In the earlier chapters of the letter to the Hebrews, the writer explained how Christ had replaced the old Mosaic covenant with the new covenant in his blood and that replaced the old sacrificial system and the need for continual sacrifices that could never fully cleanse them from sin wonderful how tony expounded that this morning when referring to yom kippur and the writer here emphasized that christ's once for all sacrifice put away our sin it removed it completely so that it was not remembered but now he says in verse 26 
For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Verse 26 follows which verse? 25. Okay. What does uh, the verse begin with? It begins with the word for, doesn't it? Verse 26 begins with the word for. That's connecting it to the previous verse, 25, and what was previously mentioned. And verse 25 ended, if you remember, with an exhortation to gather together. But some had avoided meeting together. They refused to be identified with other believers. They turned their backs on Christianity, and they were reverting to Judaism. But notice the wording of verse 26. It says here, for, for if we sin willfully. Well, according to my concordance, if we look at the Greek more literally, we should read willfully if we sin. You see, they chose to sin. Those Jewish believers chose to sin. It was a voluntary sin. It wasn't forced upon them. And then we see the phrase, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. And that shows that their actions were not through ignorance. Their actions were with the full knowledge or premeditated actions. And perhaps it would help if we understood the Greek word used for knowledge here. Rather than gnosis, it's epignosis, meaning recognition or full discernment or acknowledgement of. So the writer warns that if they, that's again, remember who he's writing to, the Jewish believers of the day, were to go back to the temple practices, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Why? Because we can't put Jesus back onto the cross. Amen? His death on the cross was a once-for-all sacrifice, and that sacrifice replaced the repeated sacrifices of bulls and goats, as we heard this morning. And so no further sacrifice could be made, and no further sacrifice was ever needed. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. To do that, we need to go back to the Old Testament principle that sins such as murder, adultery, or blasphemy, those sins couldn't be covered by means of a sacrifice. The penalty for those sins was to be utterly cut off from the people, Numbers 15, verse 30. And that actually meant physical death by stoning. It didn't mean spiritual death. Remember also that it's a willful sin. The nature of that sin is that it was voluntary. And it's a sin that these believers were willed to commit after they'd been saved. And verse 26b goes on to say, therefore there remains no more sacrifice for sin. But that begs the question again, what exactly is, or rather, what exactly was this sin? That sin, if we read these verses, was permanent separation from other believers and a return to Judaism, the temple, and its practices in order to avoid persecution. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this. He has a PDF on, on these verses. He says, even worse, this sin involves a denunciation of the three elements of verse 29, the work of the Son, the work of the Father, and the work of the Holy Spirit. For such, there is no more a sacrifice for sins, but subject to judgment. The nature of the judgment's threefold, 
Arnold says, first, it's physical death, verses 28 and 29. Secondly, specifically, death in the judgment of AD 70, verses 25 and 27. And thirdly, the loss of rewards in the next life, verses 35 and 6. In verse 27, we see the consequence of willful sin. It's a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Remember the context? The result of their total rejection of meeting together and of returning to temple practices would be the physical judgment that was to come in AD 70 by the hand of God. And that was for that generation of Jews of the day. In verse 28, we read that he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. And here the writer's reminding them that the Old Testament law teaches physical death on the word of two or three witnesses. But again, we understand this, we must understand this in this case refers to physical and not spiritual death. But the question is, why such severe judgment? Well, we'll discover that in a few moments' time. But now we come to a verse that many people find very worrying indeed, and that's verse 29. Verse 29, we read, Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done in spite of, or to insult, the Spirit of grace? How are we to interpret this one? Put simply... Punishment under grace is greater than punishment under Moses. And the writer is simply providing an application here of all his previous teachings. Jesus is greater than Moses. And therefore, if God punished under Moses, he will also punish under Jesus. But that punishment will, by definition, be greater. And then we have to ask the question, what are the consequences of this particular sin? In verse 29, we find three consequences of this sin. Firstly... The Son of God will be trodden underfoot. In other words, Jesus will be held in utter contempt and counted as worthless. The second consequence is that though the sinner is still sanctified by the blood of Jesus, he's treating the blood of Jesus the same way as the blood of any other person. In other words, it's unholy. The blood of Jesus both atones and sanctifies the believer, and those guilty of this willful sin treated the shed blood of Jesus no differently than any other. In other words, they're rejecting the Son of God. And then thirdly, this sin is committed in spite of the Spirit of grace that's been poured out, and that effectively means they were rejecting the Holy Spirit. And so in the context of these verses, those who identified themselves with the nation under judgment would not escape the consequences of that judgment even though they themselves were not the object of that judgment. Now, that sounds very complicated, so let's just summarize these last few verses. Willful sin involved permanently separating from other believers and returning to Judaism and temple practices in order to escape persecution. By rejecting Christianity, the Hebrew believers, remember when it was written, who it was written to, what was the reason, By rejecting Christianity, the Hebrew believers were denying the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And since Jesus was the only sacrifice for sin, rejection of the Son meant that there was no further sacrifice for sin, only certain judgment, the punishment for which, in the context, would be physical death in AD 70, which we read about in 
verses 25, and we read in 27 and 28. But in verse 29, there's a further punishment for those under grace. And that's the loss of rewards in the resurrected life. And those are described in verses 35 and 36, which we'll come to shortly. And so, the willful sin referred to in these verses means treading the Son of God underfoot, counting Jesus as worthless, and by definition, rejecting God the Father. It means effectively that the, the blood of the covenant is counted unholy, and therefore the Son of God is rejected. And that means really they're rejecting the Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit. However, it's important to note that this sin was be, being committed by some first century Jewish believers, not all, when this letter was written. And also, it does not result in the loss of salvation as some may try to assert. It does not result. It didn't result in the loss of their salvation. And however you read this, it cannot result in the loss of salvation. Why do I say this? Well, let's look at verse 29. He's counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. Unholy unholy thing. Now, the blood of the covenant wherewith he what? was sanctified. Is that not the next words? The text clearly states here that these believers had already been sanctified by the very blood that was counted unholy by committing this sin. They'd already been sanctified. In other words, they'd already been saved. They were saved, but they'd still be guilty. The punishment, therefore, will be physical death and not spiritual death. People still might ask questions and be confused by this, and it might cause fear and doubt in some people. And the question often asked is, what about my own sins? Those I commit knowingly, are they not willful sins? And will I, therefore, suffer the same consequences? And the answer here is no, because physical death in this context was that which happened in AD 70. No, it's still possible that the law could take the life of persistent sinner. It's not a certainty. I mean, I don't know of any examples, and I wouldn't like to point the finger at any examples. But with God, all things are possible. But it's not a certainty, as it was then. The sins we commit day by day, though some would be classed as willful, how do we know that? Because Romans 3.23 tell you, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all sin, don't we? And sometimes... Do we not sin knowing that we're not doing right? Our conscience tells us, doesn't it? And so, what we need to remember is that the sins we commit day by day are different to the sin we're looking at in this reading. Of course, having said that, we need to keep a short account, don't we? We need to keep confessing our sins to God. We need to keep seeking his forgiveness. We did that this morning. We remembered in the bread and the wine. And so the willful sin described in this passage was that of permanently turning one's back on fellowship with other believers and on Christ and returning to Judaism and the temple practices. It was the denial of faith once professed and permanently returning, if you will, to a worldly and godless life. And though the penalty cannot be spiritual death, the resultant judgment would lead to the loss of rewards in the resurrected life. It results in the loss of rewards in the resurrected life. 
As we come to the following verses, we'll come to understand why God's judgment was so severe. Verses 30 and 31. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And here, the writer's actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36, where he says, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste, for the Lord shall judge his people. So the reason for this severe judgment is God's character. God is righteous. God is holy. And when God's holiness is violated, he demands that the wicked are punished. And verse 10, 10 verse 31 tells us it's indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And though there are many that would suggest that you can lose your salvation in these verses, I would suggest that this passage, and there are others that we could look at at some other time, and indeed the whole context of Hebrews is one of encouragement, and one of encouragement to grow in maturity. It's never ever suggested that one can lose one's salvation. When we read it in its context, quite the opposite's true. And so, having said all that, I pray that having examined the context, it's now clear that the writer is indeed arguing strongly that this cannot happen. You cannot lose salvation. If you've truly accepted Christ as your saviour, your salvation is assured and guaranteed. Let me say that again. If you have ex truly accepted Christ as your saviour, your salvation is assured and guaranteed. No question. Some examples that you might want to look at at some point, just to add to the, what I've just said by way of confirmation. John chapter 5, verse 24. John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40. And my favorite verse is John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. 28. No man can ever pluck you out of my hand. The Greek who me, that double negative. Never, ever, ever, ever. And verse 29, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You have a double grip of grace. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Hebrews 6. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, and 1 John 2, verse 19. Those are verses that you might want to study. There are many more, but those are ones that you might want to look at. And then finally, the chapter ends with words of encouragement, verses 32 to 34. He says, But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly, whilst ye were made a grazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly, whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. There's the, there's the encouragement. You have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Those Hebrew believers had been rejected by their community. They'd been cast out of the synagogue. They'd been counted as dead by their nearest and dearest and had probably no means of earning an income. And they're urged to recall the earlier days when they first believed and when they were willing to suffer. Warren Rearsby writes this. He says, 
The readers had been willing to suffer reproach and persecution, even to the spoiling of their goods. When they were not persecuted themselves, they courageously identified with other Christians who were in danger, even to the point of sharing their imprisonment. At that time, they had great confidence and hope. But now they were in danger of casting away that confidence and going back into their old religion. And so the readers of the letter of that day were encouraged to persevere as they faced the future. In other words, you did it then, you can do it now. Now, that could also be true for us today. We need to be encouraged, don't we, to persevere as we face the future. We, we face a quite an uncertain future at times, don't we, in terms of worldly, worldly things. We've got war, we've got famine, we've got those terrible floods, the earthquake in Morocco. We've got people who are homeless, people who are poor, people that are jobless. Christians being persecuted for their faith all over the world, even to the point of death. And so we are urged in verses 35 and 36 of chapter 10. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need, and we need to take notice of this, for you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. The message here is, don't lose confidence in the Lord. Never, ever, ever look confident, lose our confidence in the Lord, because our confidence will be rewarded and we will receive the promise. So the lesson really is that we don't remain in a state of immaturity and be steadfast through persecution. Progress to maturity and receive the promise that's given in verse 37 of chapter 10. For yet a little while, and he that, he, that, he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Do we not often say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. But what's the promise here? The promise is that the Lord will return. The Lord's going to return. Firstly, he's going to return in the air to gather the saints in what we call the rapture. And then he's going to come that second time to earth with the saints, with you and I. Remember those white horses that you're going to be riding on? That I hope you've already named that we encouraged you last time or the time before? We're going to come back with Jesus, aren't we? And we're going to witness him defeating the armies of Antichrist and Satan. And then in verse 38 of chapter 10, the writer quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4 and says, The just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. He's encouraging us to live by faith. Let's not disappoint the Lord. Let's live in faith, brothers and sisters. You'll also see those words from Habakkuk in Romans 1.17 in Galatians 3.11, by the way. And again, Wearsby comments this. He says, Romans emphasizes the just. That's Romans 1.17. Galatians deals with shall live. Galatians 3.11. And Hebrews centers on by faith. 10 verse 38. We're not just saved from our sin by faith. We also must live by faith. And that's the theme of chapters 11 through 13 of this letter to the Hebrews. It's no coincidence, is it, that chapter 10 is followed by chapter 11. Where we read of all those heroes of faith. 
Standing firm with patient endurance through trials and persecution requires faith. And our faith is always being tested, isn't it? And so living in faith also requires maturity. James 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, as Paul would put it, dearly beloved, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, in other words, mature and complete, wanting or lacking nothing. And then finally in verse 39 and verse 10 we read, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. Paul often does this. He's returning now and he's saying, but we're not of those who draw back into perdition, but we are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. You see here, the writer's confidence, as he is throughout this letter, that the recipients will not return to their old ways. They won't return to temple practices or to Judaism. They'll not be guilty of the willful sin or sin willfully described earlier. His confidence they're going to grow in maturity and that they will persevere to win the crown and grain the promise of God. Brothers and sisters, may we share that confidence in our own walk with the Lord. We've mentioned it already, but we can see today that persecution of believers is rampant in some parts of the world and becoming more so even in our own society, isn't it? Being a believer and standing fast in our faith is not always easy. Though we don't yet see the sort of persecution these Hebrew believers expected, certainly not in, in here where we are, or that our brothers and sisters suffer in many other countries we can see that things are moving in that direction, aren't they? They're moving quite rapidly in that direction. And so let's resolve this. Let's resolve to consider one another. Let's resolve to build one another up, to exhort one another, to provoke one another to grow in maturity and in the knowledge and understanding of the word of God. That word, consider. Let's consider to do those things. Promise to yourself that you're going to do that for your brothers and sisters. But just as we come to a close, I want to remind ourselves and the position that we actually hold in Christ as believers. And it's only because of what he did for us on the cross of Calvary that we can say these things. We've been redeemed and reconciled to God. Christ is the propitiation of our sin. We've been forgiven. We've been justified. We're being glorified, or we will be glorified, should I say. We've been delivered. We've been circumcised. That's our hearts. And we've been made acceptable to God. We have the fruit of the Spirit. We're in the eternal plan of God. We're based on the rock. That's Jesus, the Messiah. We're members of a holy and royal priesthood. We've been transferred into God's kingdom. We're a chosen generation, a holy nation, a special people alongside the Jewish people that believe. We're citizens in heaven in the family of God. We've been adopted as children of God. We're part of the fellowship of saints. We're children of the light. We have heavenly associations. We're complete, we've been made full, and we're in possession of every spiritual blessing. 
We're a gift from God the Father to God the Son. We are the Messiah's inheritance. We're his heirs. And we are freed from the law of sin and death. I give credit to Arnold Fruchtenbaum for those, by the way. It's not something that I thought up. Um, Arnold does a wonderful exposition of the 33 things, our position in Christ. And there we have some of those. Our old man, our sin nature has been judged already. And we can now walk in newness of life. We're united with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. We have access to God. We're in his eternal care. Our salvation is assured throughout eternity. What a saviour. What a promise. Complicated verses. My prayer is that I've done them some justice and helped perhaps under, you understand that they're words of encouragement, not discouragement. But if anyone does doubt the security of their salvation, anybody doubts their guarantee of eternal life through Christ, or if there's anyone who hasn't accepted Christ as their saviour, I would urge you to speak to Tony or Kuan before you leave today, or if you're online, drop them an email and ask them the question. Turn to the Lord. Be saved, be assured, and have that guarantee of eternal life. May the Lord seal his words in our heart this morning.